This is a question and answer session with Joel and Tom Kurtzka, titled, Taking the Teachings to Heart, recorded April 8, 2001, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So who has a question, or comment, or experience you'd like to share? Um, this, there's, there's a saying that Andrea gave us a few months ago. Um, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Compassion tells me I am everything. And in between the two, my life flows. And I have, you know, kind of a relative picture of of the wisdom of being nothing. That you know, really, I am just this awareness, and which is not a thing. And that since everything shows up in this awareness, in a sense, I'm also all these things. That's the compassion part. And especially in compassion, when you feel compassion, you can see that you're not just this isolated individual. You're also that other person because you can feel what they're feeling kind of thing. But between the two, my life flows. Is it more helpful to think that both of those are happening at the same time and it's sort of like two big rocks and your life is sort of flowing in between them? Or that it's kind of sloshing back and forth? And first you're where you know, you do nothing and you get, you get very open and then you're thrown over against the fact, no, you're really all these people and all these you know, circumstances and then you, can't, you get burned out on that and you're thrown over against the fact that you're nothing again. How, what's the most helpful way to... I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I know his mind very well. So, I'm first of all, you're thinking about it too much. <laughs> it's a poetic image. It's an image for the heart. It's not an image for the mind. If we want to pick apart the image, it's dualistic. It's it's completely wrong in that sense, analytically. You know, so it's really an image for the heart, and. Uh, it's something to ponder, and there's a big difference between pondering and thinking about. Thinking about the mind wants to figure out. Taking something like that and pondering it, you let it seep in, you let it speak to something deeper in you than the mind. You don't have to figure it out. You don't find the meaning by figuring it out, you know what I mean? And in that process of pondering it, let it letting it sink in, then you start to learn how to express it. You start to notice in your own experience. Oh, this is what it means. Oh, this is what it means. So, having said that, because there are other people here who might be interested in that, uh, in the between the two choices you gave of thinking of your life flowing between these two great rocks or sloshing back and forth, uh, sloshing back and forth is a better one. <laughs> and we might think of it more of the sloshing back and forth of awareness, or, or more definitely of attention. And our whole lives uh, is a process of uh, expansion and withdrawal. And we can see this most clearly in our, the cycle of waking and sleep. Do you know what I mean? In waking, our attention goes out, flows out into the world, in sleep it returns, and it goes back literally to nothing. In dreamless sleep, no objects arising, no phenomena arising. 
Our, our problem is we're normally not lucid, so it just feels like a big sort of unconscious blur to us. But that is the, that one pole, if you like. So if you want to think of it as a flow of expansion and withdrawal, uh, that's much better, and that's less dualistic. We're just really flowing between two poles here. And actually, we could even do better and make that a circle. So we begin and we end up at the same place, and we just, you know... Uh, and, but you, then you can apply this, for instance, very practically to communicating with somebody, as you mentioned. Do you see what I mean? When someone's talking, when we're listening, we become nothing. In order to receive really receive what they're saying, not filter it through what we think and what we think of them and all our preconceptions. We just open to listen. Then we are nothing. <coughs> then a response is called forth. If they've asked us, if they're confiding us, if they're sharing with us, do you know what I mean? And then that response is the compassion. That response takes form from the formlessness. So in every moment of our lives, this is really going on, this whole withdrawal. And expanding again, withdrawing and expanding. You see what I mean? We really just want to notice it, and we want to notice when we interfere with that. For instance, when we're trying to listen to somebody, when, or when, when somebody's trying to tell us something, to share something with us, and we already think we know what they're saying. You know, you're sitting there listening, but the mind is already judging and criticizing process, and you haven't even heard what they're going to say yet. So it's a valuable teaching in that way. It's not just some uh, poetic inspiration. But the value of it isn't trying to figure it out more. The value is to take it to heart and then how do you practice it? What does it mean? How do you see it actually in your own life right now? Do you want to add anything? Well... I, the, the thing keeps popping in my mind. There really is no difference between the two. Which, once you start thinking about it, you try to make a difference. It's, it's like it's just the sloshing back and forth in awareness. But mind can't, mind can't think about that and understand it. So it's like you ponder or you watch. Thank you. Good question, because the answer would apply to a lot of teachings, and the way spiritual teachings, mystical teachings, are different from other kinds of teachings. Some things you are supposed to think about. Mathematics. Mind is wonderful for that. And mathematics has a beauty for those people who appreciate it. Sometime you might ask Tom McFarlane uh, about mathematics, the aesthetic aspects of mathematics. But when we are trying to see this reality that is uh, prior to any distinctions, prior to our thoughts, then we have to be careful not to uh, just keep piling more distinctions upon distinctions upon distinctions. We have to take another approach. And that's something that's hard to communicate. You have to discover that in your life. You have to discover what it means to hear a teaching, read it. It speaks to you, something in it really speaks to you, and then take it to heart means you start to just begin with just observe your life. What does this really mean in my life? 
And what you're really seeing is obstacles to it. Oh, I see. It's like this. So, but this is what I'm doing. So let me just drop that. Oh, it starts to become clearer and clearer. A spiritual path is really about not accumulating knowledge. It's about dropping useless knowledge. Or we might say keeping knowledge, that kind of thinking knowledge, in its proper sphere, not letting it uh, try to take over our whole lives. Yes? What uh, speaks to me in his comment about uh, you know, wisdom I'm nothing, um, I think it creates a competitiveness in ourselves. If we think we're nothing, we're always striving to be something. I think that begins to take our attention away from compassion, away from relatedness. Especially true for men, but it's true in our culture. So we end up um, thinking we're only something if we have wisdom or production or money or whatever. And it tends to kill the sloshing. Mm-hmm. It, it flows over the other side of the dam out of, out of the picture. Breaks that cycle you're talking about. That's very true, and the uh, the virtue that addresses that is humility, and and that's why humility is wisdom. Humility is not, uh, uh, oh, I'm I'm nothing, I'm no good, I'm you know. It's just seeing things clearly and truthfully. And how much, do, how much of the time do we think we know? We're so sure. And we don't really, if we're, if we're truly wise about ourselves and we have true humility, it's, it's, it's not a negative thing at all. It's just really looking at the fact, well, I really don't know. I have a lot of opinions, you know, about what's wrong with you, but uh, I really don't know. You see what I mean? I have a lot of opinions about what's wrong with the world. And opinions are, are, are uh, there's nothing wrong with opinions if we recognize that that's all they are. They're just opinions. They maybe, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Who knows? You know, we'll find out. Well, if they're, if they're competitive opinions, they can be dangerous. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And this becomes, and I'll speak personally here, uh, this is something then you see exactly what you can do. You can take a teaching like that, and now you can start to see in your own life what stops the slosh. And you can start to see, as happened in my life, one of the big things I was very attached to was an image of myself as being always right. And I worked with that a lot. And I, I came to see that, you know. I would get very upset. It caused me a lot of suffering when somebody questioned whether I was right or not. This is wonderful, you see, because this is how you can actually take that. And then you start to uh, look at your life. And then you see the obstacles. And then you say, oh, well... So, what is this attachment to this image of myself? I and mean, this is just an image. It's, this is probably going way over my head. But it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, you know, I don't see the difference. I go back to what Tom said. You know, what it says to me is, I am nothing. In other words, my ego is not what I thought it was. And I am everything, meaning I'm one with, with everybody and everything else. Which is the ultimate, I mean, that's what we're really striving for. Is it? (laughs) Well, you can't. (laughs) Striving (laughs) right there implies that there's something trying to get the nothing. From y'all's position, you're no longer striving. Myself, I am. See, that's right there. You, 
basically have to do less than nothing to see it. So, so um, well, right there, it, it gets back to I, I don't know your name. No. The, the competitive, it just is another form of that. It's like well, how how do I get to the nothing? Well, I'm not there yet, but I my feeling is if I ever get there, the two will be the same. You know, my ego will be gone, and I will be one with everything. <laughs> yeah, but you need to drop that one too because that's just more thinking about what you think it is that you're going to. It, it, get back to the don't know thing. It's 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 like a complete unknowing. You can't when you're nothing. <laughs> when you're really nothing, you don't know. But yet, in one way, you do know. <laughs> You see, you see the problems, Tom. You see what you have to do? It ain't easy sitting up here, is it? Well, it's, it's easier with eight of them than a. I feel like a searcher, whatever, because you guys treat us that way. I mean, you you tell us that we can do things. You give us practices. You, you talk to us as if we are controlling this whole thing, but we aren't. So that's, I mean, it's totally confusing. No, but see, you're you're, mis you're missing it. We always say we always say. <laughs> you gotta learn. You see, this is upsetting yeah. to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when they're suffering and you're laughing. They think you're laughing at them. He's learning. Okay. There's always the trouble with the language, but what what I always try to say is is you observe, you watch. Okay. There's a, there's a difference between that and and striving for something, but at the same time, it, it, it's it's a very weird thing because if you don't if you don't have any, and I, I think it was mentioned last week, if there's there's no impetus, you recognize that something's not right. Okay, I mean that's probably why you're here. There's something that isn't right, right? So there's an impetus to try to fix that or see what you're not seeing. So that good to a certain extent because it's like it's kicking you in the butt and you're doing something. If you didn't make any effort at all, then We'd sit around, we'd vegetate, and we'd just be lost in these thoughts, and and, and nothing would happen. Okay, but, but from your perspective, it's more like if effort wasn't made, because there's no you who's making the effort, right? I mean, because again, you're you're talking about like there's somebody here who needs to make effort, and that's the confusing part. Mm -hmm. well, that's because we're talking in language, and it's dualistic by nature. So, <laughs> I, I we could drop all the pronouns, and but then it would yeah. be confusing too, wouldn't it? So, I mean, you have to sort of look past that when we say you and I and all that, which is hard to do. It's like tuning an instrument. There has to be a certain amount of, effort's the wrong word, attention. You're paying attention. You're watching. Well, what's going on? You become the scientist and you're looking and you're seeing there's this and there's this and there's this. But in, in Bob's instance, the reason why I answered the way I did was it sounded like he was developing a picture of what he saw so-called awakening or enlightenment. In other words, he said, it, it's going to be missing ego. It's going to be missing this. It's going to be like this. Okay, so right away, there's this image of what it is. 
but it's a no thing. You, you can't conceive it. So if you have this image, you're looking, okay? But watching is different than looking. <laughs> Could you clarify that last one? <laughs> watching is different than looking? <laughs> okay, looking implies an active kind of a, a search. You're trying, you're, you're looking almost implies that you're, you expect something to be out there. Watching is more of a passive observing, more of an objective kind of, well, let's see what happens. Like witnessing. Just witnessing, yes. Yeah. So what you mean looking for, as watching yes. rather than looking for something. Yeah, watching means just, okay, just being there versus trying to make something be there. Let me add to that, uh, only that there's also several factors in here. First of all, in our delusion, we can't help but look for something. That's what we're conditioned to do. And we can't help thinking that we are doing something and are going to accomplish something. That's part of our conditioning. So these are not subject to <coughs> directly to the intervention of our willpower, because our willpower itself is part of the delusion. So when you hear uh, a teaching like, don't make any effort, then the mind says, okay, I'm going to stop making effort. But that is making an effort. Do you see what I mean? And I'm not going to look for anything is a subtle looking for something. Everything's going to be clear if I don't look for anything. You see, there's still that expectation that something's going to happen. Given that situation... Most teachings and most practices are predicated on this kind of false assumption. I say to you, okay, this is what you think you're doing. Well, I'll give you some things to do. I'll give you some things to look for. And eventually you will discover how impossible this is, how ridiculous it is. So that's why I often say that the, a spiritual path, a mystical path, is different from any other kind of uh, self-help, self-improvement program that you can think of. Because all those programs offer you success. That you will learn how to win friends and influence people if you follow this 10-step program. If you go for eight weeks, you'll learn how to sell real estate and become rich. Uh, you know, you'll learn self-assertiveness. They promise that you'll succeed. A mystical path promises that you'll fail. And in the failing is when you really see. But in the meantime, uh, it's taking that energy of the seeking and sort of, in a sense, turning it back on itself. It's like a judo trick. I used to be leery about saying this because sort of giving away the magician's uh, secrets, but you'll all forget it and you won't believe me anyway. And <laughs> so I don't worry about it too much anymore. <clears throat> but truly, that's how it works. And that's why it is important to, uh, particularly in certain kinds of practice, to put in effort. In the Zen tradition, they say... Um, uh, little effort, little satori. <coughs> big effort, big satori. And they'll say things like, you'll never see a palace of pearls in a blade of grass until the sweat has run down your back. Now, this is a particular style of practice. This is working with koans, for instance, where you take these, you know, these puzzles that are insoluble by the mind, and you work on them, work on them, work on them, until the mind itself just lets go, gets exhausted. I know it sounds confusing, but again, it's really important that 
you should question the teachings and you should question the practices to the point where you are convinced that there may be something valuable in them. But at some point, you have to give up the questioning and just go do the practice and see what happens. That's the watching part. If you just do the practice and stay mindful, witnessing, then you will see things happening. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> along these lines, I have, I am, right in the moment, very skeptical. I feel really skeptical. I Okay. It's about this whole issue. So, I mean, I, the feeling I have is you guys are leading us on a circuitous route. <laughs> and it's kind of like there's that no pain, no gain behind these teachings, the way they are being delivered. And I say this because I've spent in the last few months a lot of time reading a whole bunch of different contemporary teachers. So it seems like these teachers, you know, they have a lot of differences, seemingly differences and all, and supposedly these are supposed to be people who are all awakened, you know. So they seem to fall into two categories. One, do all these practices, you know, meditate, precepts, whatever. The other is just be there, accept what is, as is. You know, I mean, you've heard all this. And there's some very, like, Eckhart Tolle is one of those. And this guy, uh, Ramesh Balsakar's student, Wayne Lickerman. And then just recently, Tony Parsons. I, I just read his book. And, of course, I'm very lazy. Well, that's not exactly true. But I, I am lazy. Not lazy, but I hate spiritual practices. I mean, I hate them all. You know, to me, like, anything in the world is better than meditating. And, and, you know, I think of all the literature, for the most part, you know, all those ancient sages. I mean, it's just like, been there, done that, you know. I don't care what all these dead people said. <laughs> this may be funny, but I'm serious, you know, I am serious about this. It's like... For I, those of you who are new here, if you're worried about this as some cult where everybody <laughs> reveres us, I'm... <laughs> right there. <laughs> so, now, so you listen, I listen to someone like Eckhart Tolle, and, okay, granted, I understand this could just be an experience Oh, bad, 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 you know, that's just another experience. But I kind of intuitively, I like get this hit like, oh, there is another way. There's an, I'm not saying that the kind of end result, so to speak, wouldn't, that, that there isn't in some non-doing way something that needs to be done that you can't really do in some work. But it seems like, I don't know, I'm coming to feel that I hear these words and it's just like, ah, you know? It's like, there's a, there would be another way to just cut through all this and, and really that message, I feel like if I heard that message enough, there's nothing to do. You don't have to do anything. Give it up. You know, just be, accept what is, as is, da-da-da-da. I think I would get it. Why don't you do it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, you're going back and reading more, and going, that's still doing. 
You want to hear more messages? You're still looking for something. Why don't you just now stop? Or like a dead guy, Rumi's head. <laughs> no more words. Listen to the voice within. No, even that's too much. Don't listen to any voice within. Your voice within is... No, no, no. Look, all these teachings come down to be still, right? Be still. Attention. Keep, keep, just yeah. be still. So do it. Just do it. If you want to cut through all this, do it. You see, the practices grow out of people trying to do that, and then they find they can't keep their attention still. So then what do you do? You know, there's a famous story about the Buddha. One day he came in with a flower. He held up a flower and he twirled it to a, uh, a group of, you know, 500 monks. Yeah, they all, exactly, you know what happened. You see, just what you're doing. Except for one guy in the back, forgotten his name. Oh, he got up and he bowed to the Buddha and big smile and he left. Okay, so that's the highest teaching right there. See, no meditation, no words even, no nothing. That's the highest teaching right there. Okay, that didn't work. Let's try something else. <laughs> Let me use words. I'll tell you, just still your mind. Just still your mind. Don't get wrapped up in all these thoughts and the story and all that. Just drop all that. Keep your mind still. Most people, they find they can't do that. Oh, well, why don't you put your attention on your breath? I'll give you something to... Uh, a way to train your attention to start doing that. You see what I mean? The practices evolve like, from there. It just still seems like there's this forward progression through time and space, or certainly time. And so we keep giving this message that we're doing this, these practices through time to get over here. And even though you say there's nowhere to go and nothing to do and no one to get there and no one doing it, it seems like a double message to me, too, actually. Why don't you address it? <laughs> I don't understand her mind. <laughs> I do. Um, part of that is the way you interpret it, and part of it is the way we use language to express it. So I'll, I'll go with, <laughs> I'll put the blame on us. There is that appearance of a sequence of events, but that that really is organized through our concepts. To present this stuff, it comes out like that because we're using language, which again is organized around concepts. So if we give you a practice and say, you know, the breath meditation, watch the breath, when thinking happens, go back to the breath. And then we start talking about, yeah, if you do this in six months, you know, maybe you'll, you'll, you'll stabilize attention and you'll, you'll be more peaceful and you won't get so wrapped up in thoughts. Okay, right there we're implying that there's a progress in place, right? Mm-hmm. But that's just it. But, they say that you can't, you really, it, I, I don't really like, well, the word grace, you know, is often mentioned in this context, but it's almost like, there is no you, there is no way to will anything, so there really isn't anything. Well, there isn't. To do, you can't, <laughs> can't affect this phenomenon. You can't do anything. Well, ultimately, that's what it leads to. Why don't you just constantly say, that's it, give it up. You guys are there, you are it. That's well, boring. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what are you talking about? You can think of a lot of different but things. But Karen, Karen, look, look, it's so obvious. 
Move your hand back and forth. I see it right there. Okay, <laughs> it's just plain as day. It's there. Okay, now if I do that to you, <laughs> you're not seeing it. So it's like, well, okay, they didn't get that. Let's try, you know, this. You know, no, didn't get that. Let's try this. I, I get back to the simple breath meditation. If one is practicing that, one gets distance from thought, which is causing most of the problems. That's what's causing the veil to be there that you can't see. And so it unfolds like a river. For most people, it's circuitous. It, 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 you have to go through all this BS to get to the point where you're just still and you see it. <laughs> there, there is one, let me say this. There's one other way that this happens, uh, and that without any spiritual practice whatsoever. If for some reason your life circumstances brings you to the point of absolute desperation, absolute desperation, as, by the way, um, what's his name? The, you just mentioned him. Eckhart Tolle describes. Yeah, he was. Then he was, you yeah. see what happens is you can't figure out a way to get out of your predicament. You are lost, totally lost. All your strategies, all the things you ever did to try to be happy have failed. Life brings you there without even ever hearing about a mystic. There's an opportunity to wake up. Some people wake up that way. They never did any practice, so they don't see any value in doing the practice. But some people but how do you... wake up without those desperate circumstances, without doing anything. Or the night before, about this woman who was driving home from work. She was an interior decorator. <laughs> <laughs> she was in her car and like, no spiritual background. Nothing. She redecorated her interior. <laughs> <laughs> bit back there. You guys seem to enjoy meditating. What's that about? <laughs> we enjoy life. No difference. Life, meditation, what's the difference? Just look at cats. My cats don't enjoy meditating very much. Is it just an excuse to sit still and let <laughs> No, it's the sloshing. <laughs> it's the sloshing back and then the sloshing out and then the sloshing back. Mm. It depends on what you consider what you consider meditation, actually. When I started teaching, I was not a very good meditator at all. I'd done very little meditation. And then I started teaching what I knew, and then my students started getting better than me. So then I realized I had to meditate more because I didn't know what they were talking about when they described certain states they were in, things like that. So then I got interested in meditation again. So I started meditating and doing different kinds of meditation. And then I would see, oh, that produces this state. It produces that. Meditation itself does produce various states and things, you see. So I want to know what this does, and then I can see what the value of the state is. But you have said it's not enlightenment is not a state. That's exactly right. I mean, just bouncing off Karen's things because I really resonate with her when she's saying this, this abhorrence of spiritual practices. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. So, you know, there's this misleading thing of of uh, okay, exotic states are are obtained. And of course, that's not it. In fact, that's it's. It seems to be misleading in a way. It's kind of like you can get trapped by those uh, 
those states. You can get in a samadhi and stay there for a week. And uh, and I have actually after the last spring's retreat, I had this little samadhi and big deal. You know, I wasn't. I didn't feel like I was any closer. Ultimately, because <laughs> you're never going to get any closer, Vip. You already are there. So, you know, <laughs> see, this is the problem. Just what Tom was talking about. Our mind sets up this uh, this game. You are playing the game. See, this is what I'm saying. It's not like uh, you can decide not to. Or if you think you can, do. Stop. I mean, I can give that teaching. Just stop. Just don't ever do anything again. No, I mean it. You don't do anything again. Your body will go on doing things. Your mind will go on doing things. But you just stop doing anything. If you stop doing anything... There'll be no you there, because that's a creation of the mind. So there's the, there, that's the teaching. Go ahead. I'll tell you what's more dangerous, and you're right, people uh, get attached to states in meditation, then they start meditating to stay in that state, to maintain that state, and so forth. All these things are dangerous. But I think it's more dangerous is to delude yourself that true spontaneity and the Tao expressing itself and all that is whatever comes into your head. That I don't have to practice because I have good nature anyway and I'll just do what I want. Everything will be fine. This is a very romantic idea of spirituality and of life, you know. The real test here has nothing to do with what we say or anything like that. Are you happy? Do you suffer? If you don't have any suffering, and if you're perfectly happy and content, what are you doing here? I have not the slightest idea why you'd want to come here. Everybody's their own authority about enlightenment, you know. It's nobody can... Conf- uh, I mean, if you want to be a teacher in certain traditions, you come and you talk to your teacher, and then, you know, there's a little test thing, so the teacher then speaks for you with some confidence and says, yes, you can trust this person, I'm giving my Inca, they call it in the Zen tradition or whatever. But truly, that's just for form, that's just for the purposes of a teaching format. But you yourself are the only one who ever knows if you are happy. And if you are happy, why would you do any spiritual practice? I mean, this is really what it boils down to, if we really want to get down to the, you know, brass tacks here, you know. If you are not happy, and here you are going along trying to be natural, trying to be spontaneous, don't do any work, but you find yourself still suffering, still in misery, then you might want to try some spiritual practices. You know, all this is predicated on a student coming to a teacher and saying, I don't know what to do. I'm unhappy. I'm suffering. Help me out. So there's no should or shouldn't here. And one of the problems is, if you take the spiritual teachings as something I should do, like your parents are telling you, you should do this to be a good person or to get enlightened and so forth, of course you're going to rebel against them. Of course you're going to say, why should I do this? It's an imposition. It's restricting my life. It's restricting my freedom. I want to go out to a movie if I want to go out to a movie. Why should I sit there and meditate, you know? You're in a big fight with yourself. You're not in a fight with any teacher, although you may think you're in a fight with a teacher. Now, most people do find, when they start to practice, that there is a little battle develops in them. There's the old conditioned habit that just wants to go along in life the way it's always gone in life, that's still not convinced that it won't find happiness if it just found the right soulmate. 
<laughs> you know. And then there's the other side that we would call the awakening side that says, hey, you know, you've done this before over and over again. It's never made you happy. So stick with the meditations, stick with the precepts, you know. But there's no should here. And that's something that as individuals we have to get rid of. We bring something to the practices that is ours and we make the practices our own. So my meditation practice is my meditation practice. Not because somebody else gave it to me like wearing a borrowed coat, you know what I mean? This is mine. When that takes root, people have the opposite problem. They don't want to give up their meditation. But the the key is here to find the practice that starts to, in little ways, reveal things to you. Oh, then you'll know the value of the practice. Then you get curious about it. To find the practice that starts to open your heart in little ways so that you start to feel that love and compassion, not because you should be loving and compassionate and share your toys with all the other little kids, do you know what I mean? No, because you see, oh my gosh, this is the best kept secret in the world. It actually feels good to let go, not to carry all this baggage around and worry about it and fret about it, and wonder what's going to happen, and if somebody's going to take it, and am I going to be taken advantage of, and all that baggage of self. That is hell. That is hell. You don't have to wait to die to go to hell. So you have to take these teachings. You have to test them. You have to find the ones that are right for you. You know, no teaching, no practice is right for everybody. The practices that we teach, or any teacher teaches, are practices that, for a a good percentage of the people, more or less work. I say more or less work because each individual seeker then takes the practice and has to customize it for themselves eventually. And so that's another way you take the teachings to heart, you take the practice to heart, you make them your own. And for a while, that's what serves you. That's, as the, to go back to the old Buddhist term, that's the raft you use to cross the ocean of samsara. And when you get to the other side, you drop it. You don't carry the raft around. Somebody, yes, back there. Um, I had a, a question for you. I was um, at your talk on Thursday. Uh-huh. And you talked about the mystics um, and selflessness. Yes. They all, can you talk more about that? I know I'm changing. No, 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 you actually... (laughs) 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 You see, this is great, because you're getting right really to the heart of it. Mystics say, what we have discovered, and I'm now going to speak, what I have discovered in my life and experience, given that we're using words now, and I have to use the word my life and all that, makes it sound like a self, but what I have discovered, what I discovered was that the real source of my suffering and unhappiness always was the false idea that I was a separate little self locked up in this body, you know, like looking out through these eyes and, you know, uh, like those guys sitting on those big crane machines in the cab, pulling the lever, making my hands go up and down, things like that, you know. This kind of, not just idea, but whole experience. 
That was really the cause of my suffering. All my life, I used to think it was because of what people were doing to me outside or circumstances outside. But what I discovered was, no, it had nothing to do with that. It was this sense of being a self. Now, the question is, or the problem is, this is my ex- seems to be my experience in life. Well, this is just the way it is. I am just this self cut off here. Do you see what I mean? But what I'm saying to you, that's not the way it is. That is a kind of delusion. It's a false perception. That is not truly the way it is. And if you would see things truly, as Meister Eckhart said, you would see there really is nobody in here. To go back to the very beginning, Wesley said, that's the nothing side. It's not a nothing like a negative, I am, you know, I'm nothing. It just isn't there. So I've spent my whole life trying to enhance and defend something that doesn't exist. And because it doesn't exist, I can't enhance it ultimately, and I can't defend it ultimately. So the real secret here is to realize, not through thinking, directly realize, my gosh, there is no self in here. And all this striving and all this trying to improve it has been futile activity. What there is in here is a kind of flow, flowing of awareness, in consciousness, in this great limitless space of consciousness. And in that flowing, there is a a love, a compassion, a joy, an appreciation, a beauty. It's always been there. It's not something we have to actually attain. We just have to see it. How can I top that? <laughs> um, the other thing that when we're, we're again, the, the selflessness versus self, when we're in the self perspective, it's sort of like that's a veil that prevents us from seeing this, what's really there. That's, that's the key thing that blocks us from recognizing what's there right in front of us. And so, did something get crossed about that idea in terms of what selflessness is, in terms of traditional religions? Did it get lost, the, the definition of it? The, in traditional religions, that you're trying to say yeah. that yes. outward yeah. so much. Uh, I can say without you know the slightest qualm, despite the fact that whatever I say is going to fall short of the truth, there is no self. I know this directly. We can now we're talking about historical theories about why religions may lose track of this truth. You know, uh, partly that uh, if you don't do the practices or you don't have a spontaneous awakening, it's it's very hard to understand, and our minds are so. Conditioned to try to understand. We only feel safe and comfortable when the mind thinks it can understand something. Do you see what I mean? So we take the teachings, which are relative. They are paradoxical. They are confusing. And we try to solve that. And that is like theology. We, we, we might say, yes, there's something mysterious, you know, God, we can't really understand. But we think we can understand this much, right? And then we lock on to that. This is the way it is. And so now we feel safer. We feel comfortable. Oh, now I know what the world is. I know my place within the world. I know what I'm supposed to do. 
because my tradition tells me. It's, it's not a, necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, I think it's better to have religion than no religion, despite some of the horrors that have come out of that. But for most people, it's a better, saner life. And most traditional religions do teach those values of compassion and love and so forth. You know what I mean? One of the problems is, though, when we lock on to our ideas about this and stop really doing the practice or or we're just doing the practice because, you know, mommy and daddy told you to pray at night or uh, whatever, uh, then unless mystics keep coming along and renewing a tradition, saying, no, but look, this is really what it was about, they tend to ossify. You know, it's like a fossil. The living uh, animal in there dies and you're left with a shell. And some religions historically have just passed away and died, and others need to be constantly renewed, you know. In the world of form, in religions, there's always going to be this tension. In society, there's always going to be this tension. We are always looking for a solution. There isn't a solution. This is the game. This is the music. This is the play. Stop trying to find a solution. It's over if you find a solution. If you find a solution to society, it's finished. It's death. <coughs> Picasso said, I never finished painting. To finish a painting is to give it the coup de grace. It's to kill it. We treat our lives that way. We want to find the solution. We think we're going to get someplace. And everything's going to be hunky-dory. You know, uh, the only place that happens is in uh, Hollywood movies. And the movie ends. They ride off to the sunset and then the end comes up. Why are you so anxious to, to end your life? Life is beautiful. Life is joyful. You see what I'm trying to get at? So, in the play of this, let's not make ultimate judgments about it. Let's not look and say, oh, all these religions have screwed everything up. They're to blame. You see what I mean? No, they're not to blame. Let's be willing to play. In the play, you take sides. In the play, when things are getting too ossified, that your role might be to shake things up. But on the other hand, when things get too loose, and all discipline is thrown away, and all practices are thrown away, and the only teaching is be still and let your true nature blossom and love everybody, <laughs> now then maybe your, your role is to come along and say, you know, it's not quite that easy. Don't fool yourself. Don't fall into some romantic trap that you're practicing spirituality because you're gardening. <laughs> Which, you know, you're not. You can make gardening a spiritual practice. You can make it a wonderful practice of mindfulness. That's right. You just do exactly with the breath. You plant, you know, the, the seeds and stuff. When your mind wanders off about other things, you bring it back, the attention, the feel of the soil, the smell, everything that's right there, immediate in the present. You can make gardening a fabulous meditative practice. But gardening is not a meditative practice. <laughs> you can get great insights from gardening. Because what do you do? Do you actually make the plants grow? No. Rather mysterious how they grow. You put the seed in, you put the water in. This is very much like a spiritual path. So there's stuff to do, but you don't actually make the plant grow, do you? See, it's like Jesus said, uh, what is the kingdom of God like? It's like a woman who needs uh, yeast into the bread, and then it rises on its own. You still have to knead the yeast in, but you don't actually make it happen. That's the grace part. That's the paradox. Yes, in the corner there. 
Or did you? Oh, yeah. yeah. If there is no self, what questions? <laughs> it just happens. It's it's like the seed growing. It it arises in in nothing. Um, however. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say awareness. Let's say God. God gave us all a thinking mind. Okay. So this whole practice is not to say that thinking's bad. We're not thinking anymore. Thinking is quite useful. I mean, if you couldn't think, I mean, you couldn't get up from that chair to go in your car to go home, right? So again, it's it's not that thinking's bad, bad, bad. It's that we buy into the thinking and we think that's us and that's real. So your thinking mind, which is a useful tool, questions, but that questioning is is arising in that awareness. But we think that thinking is something more than it is. We put too much emphasis on it because we think that's us, but it really has no more significance and stuff arising in awareness as the faint sound of that fan going off. But yet we can tune into it and use it to make rational decisions on figuring things out. But ultimately it's it's just more play. It's all play in the space of awareness. And you can make a practice out of the question that you just asked. And in fact, it is a, uh, a practice taught by a Ramana Maharshi, who was a 20th century, great 20th century Hindu mystic. And the practice is, whenever a thought arises like that thought, who is thinking, you ask the question yourself and go look. And then if the answer is, well, I am thinking, well, who's thinking I? You see what I mean? And you can ask that about not just thinking, but all of experiencing. Who is experiencing this? And the reason to ask the question, again, isn't to come up with another thought, because any thought you come up with, then you just continue the question. Well, who's thinking that? But it's, again, to direct attention away from the thought. What is there before thought arises, prior to thought? So if your attention is now taken off the content of the thought and starts to be directed to the source of the thought, ooh, that's a wonderful practice. Of course, it's boring and it takes a lot of effort and work. I mean, it's fun for, you know, 10 minutes. Uh, but then after a while, it, you know, it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> and it's not for everybody. And Ramana Maharshi himself said it's not for everybody. It's, it's a very specialized practice. And most people are better to do a devotional practice, actually, or mantra or something. Well, one aspect of the Jungian tradition is the, to make friends with your ego because it's been a valuable tool, as you were saying, to not put it down, not castigate ourselves because we think or because we question. I think we want to be careful about semantics here. It depends on how we're using ego. Um, if we're using ego strictly to mean the thinking mind, and, and not, not that there's necessarily a mind there that's doing a thinking, but the thought processes, do you know what I mean? If we're using ego in that way, we certainly do not want to put it down. We couldn't, this makes us human, I mean, you know what I mean? 
the great Zen master Wei Ning said there's a big mistake people make in meditation that they think it's about getting rid of thought and that'll make us like rocks that's not the purpose of the spiritual path is to end up like a rock in that sense uh, but we want to be very careful because the thinking mind then and you can see this, observe this literally creates an ongoing story with a character named I this is imaginary it's no different from a novel that you read or, a, you know, a drama or something like that. It's literally an imaginary character. And there's this ongoing story, and with us humans, maybe several stories, you know, we're trying to put together and make sense out of it. And it's going on, and what happens is we lose track that this is imaginary. That's where we fall into delusion. Not even that the story can't go on. The stories are wonderful. An analogy that I like to use for this is like an actor uh, being in a play and the actor's playing the part completely passionately without any distraction. That is why, you know, that makes a good actor, right? An actor who just sort of lackadaisically walks through the part, we think that wasn't much of a performance. But if that actor loses track of the fact of the reality of what's going on, and suddenly believes that they are in a reality, then what was uh, beautiful, uh, what had meaning, significance, all those things now becomes a place of terror. Do you know what I mean? If uh, Who's the kid who played uh, Luke Skywalker? Does anybody remember his name? Whatever happened to him? <laughs> if he, in the midst of that thought that he was actually having to battle this Darth Vader, he would not enjoy his role. He would be terrified. (laughs) This is, to really pinpoint it, this is the crux of our problem. We do not recognize the reality of what is going on. And if we don't know the reality, then we don't behave realistically. And if we don't behave realistically, we suffer. So you could say the whole, the whole spiritual path by waking up just to the simple fact. There is no referent to that I that the mind creates. There is no referent. It is like a grammatical marker. It's like saying, it's raining outside. It's perfectly good to say that. And, you know, we understand each other, but we also understand there's no true it, something up in the sky that's raining. It's just a convenience in speech. Makes me think of uh, Plato's uh, simile of the cave. The person finally figured out what was real, and everyone else killed him. And what? What? He figured out what was real, and the other people killed him. Oh, yeah, that's a. Is that connected with the uh, cave story? I'm not sure, but anyway, that's a famous story too. Yes. You know. You know, this is like I just described, tried to describe to you one way of putting it, what it's all about, and it sounds rather simple, and it sounds no big deal. But in the process of creating this story, this character becomes so important to us that the idea may not be real. It's terrifying. We read it as death. Then I'm going to disappear, or I may not be there. Something, And I'll let this man speak more about that as an obstacle on the path. Talking about fear? Yes. <laughs> well, that's what 
you know, our, our, one of our, our ties to ego is, is we think that's who we are. And if we let go of it, then there's a depth or where, where do we go? It's, it's almost like you're, you're getting ready to jump off the building and you go, well, if I jump, I'm going to keep falling, 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 and then hit the ground. Well, what happens is you jump and you just keep falling, 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 but you never hit the ground because you, you realize what was there all the time, which is this no thing where there's no you or I in it. There's just this. And so then you're just falling, falling, falling. And it's fine, but ego is terrified of that. And so we clutch onto that all the time. And what's really interesting, as Joel was saying, if you, you try to find who is thinking this thought, you do that inquiry, you'll really never pinpoint that I. Is it the body? Is it this thinking mind? It, there, it, it's, it, it really isn't there the more you dig and try to find it. But the paradox is we think we still are that I that's looking for the I. And, you know, it takes courage to let that, let that go and look past that. And again, it's, it's, it's observing and doing whatever practice you're doing. And it, it's constantly just dropping everything. I was just ready to jump off the cliff in every moment. All right. Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? And you are welcome to stay and have some tea and check out our library. Until we see you again, peace to you all.